A cock, our story tells of, who high on a dunghill stood and crew. A fox, attracted, straight drew nigh and spake soft words of flattery. Dear sir, said he, your looks divine. I never saw a bird so fine. I never heard a voice so clear, except your father's. Ah, oh, poor dear. His voice rang clearly, loudly, but most clearly when his eyes were shut. The same with me, the cock replies, and flaps his wings and shuts his eyes. Each note rings clearer than the last. The fox starts up and holds him fast. Towards the wood he hies apace. But as he crossed an open space, the shepherds spy him. Off they fly, the dogs give chase with hue and cry. The fox still holds the cock, though fear suggests his case is growing queer. Tush, cries the cock, cry out to grieve him. The cock is mine, I'll never leave him. The fox attempts in scorn to shout and opes his mouth, the cock slips out. And in a trice has gained a tree. Too late, the fox begins to see how well the cock his game has played, for once his tricks have been repaid. In angry language, uncontrolled, he begins to curse the mouth that's bold to speak when it should silent be. Well, says the cock, the same with me. I curse the eyes that go to sleep just when they ought sharp watch to keep, lest evil their lord befall. Thus fools contrariously do all. They chatter when they should be dumb, and when they ought to speak are mum. Hi, I'm Alexa. And I'm Ian. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. Well, it's that time, Ian. <laughs> it's chicken time. It's chicken time. The word, the word chicken <laughs> never appeared in your reading, and yet it, and it was definitely chicken-centered. Yes. Well, specifically, it centers on the cock and the fox. So it's a fable, like an animal fable, similar to Aesop, um, from the French 12th century writer Marie de France. So her name was Marie. And as she tells us in one of her poems, she is from France, um, specifically from Brittany. But she was writing in England in the 12th century, in Anglo-Norman French. So she wrote a series of fables about animals, similar to Aesopian fables. And um, this is one of them in which a fox thinks he's cleverly tricked a cock, but the cock also cleverly tricks the fox. So both are fools in a sense. Is her version the earliest medieval version of this fable that we have? Uh, no, it's not. It is sort of derivative um, of Aesop and derivative of some classical sources. It's also found in the um, early bestiary tradition. So hers is the first to really sort of spell it out this way. And then it inspires a lot of later medieval writers, including Geoffrey Chaucer. Yes, the famous uh, nun's priest tale. So we have we have seen yes. Marie de France before with her her lays. We did the werewolf, for example. So she mm -hmm. is now a a guest mm -hmm. favorite on the show. Yes, if we could interview her, we would. But yeah, you know, <laughs> we have had a fox try to take away some of our chickens in the middle of the day, as well. Although I I don't think the conversation went anything like it was in the. 
in the story you gave us, it, it involved a lot more shouting on our part and waving of hands and barking of dogs before the fox. Well, there the were the go. shepherds. Yeah, the shepherds were out there, and the dogs were barking in uh, Marie's poem. Um, in the nun's priest tale, does that come up? I can't remember. Mostly, I remember the conversation between Chanticleer, the rooster, and his favorite of seven wives, uh, Pertolotti. Yes, Pertolotti. Yeah, um, who he, sn- he snuggled up with her at the beginning. It's a sort of mock romantic epic, I suppose you could say. You know, what I like about this, the fable is that they are, that they're both sort of equally tricked and deceived, you know, that it sort of ends in a stalemate rather than some triumphant, you know, moral in which somebody loses and there's the moral of that story. They both just agree that they've been fools. Yes, exactly. And they both rue their own foolishness. Perhaps it's a story that is useful to anyone who is feeling regret for poor decisions made. A seasonally appropriate moral for the holiday seasons when we're all prone to overeat, overspend, maybe say things in front of our family members we shouldn't have said. <laughs> Remember, John After Claire. a couple of cups of eggnog. <laughs> well, do we know? So this is, you know, a fable, right? So it's the talking animals uh, behaving partly mm-hmm. like animals. you know, partly like the real animals do, right? I mean, certainly, as I mentioned, foxes do come and take chickens. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the the whole procedure is very similar. Uh, But it's a fable Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's it's clearly turning the the animal story into a human kind of moral exemplum. And I wonder, Mm -hmm. you know, we've seen that the bestiary tradition does this within particularly a spiritual context, you know, rigorously, right? Turns Mm -hmm. everything into that. Is this how the cock is usually portrayed more widely? Is it always a, a sort of a f- fabulous animal, not a fantastic animal, but a fabulous as in f- in the fable? Not universally. I mean, for example, also in the 12th century, there was a um, a Norman cleric, a, a French, um, you know, I think I think he was maybe a associated with a monastery. I can't remember exactly. His name is Hugh de Fouy. Um, and he, he wrote a number of important spiritual tracts. But among these was a book called De Avibus, or On the Birds. Um, and it's an allegorization of, I, I believe it's about 12 different birds. And one of the birds that he discusses is the cock, uh, the rooster. And interestingly, some of the things that turn up in a lot of the earlier sort of classical bestiary tradition about roosters, unsurprisingly, have to do with their masculinity, their aggression, their pride, their intelligence, and their sort of uxoriousness, like the way they, they are good husbands, or at least attentive husbands. But Hugh instead writes about the cock as a preacher. He says the the rooster, the cock, is like a preacher because he um, crows more loudly in the morning to wake everybody up than he crows throughout the day. His crowing becomes extremely loud if there's danger. And so like the preacher, he's kind of tuning his utterances to the situation. He's attentive to his audience and his audience's 
needs. He's also measured. So there's a tradition in classical literature that roosters are actually able to observe the stars. They're they're astronomers and they're (laughs) able to um, tell time, unlike other animals. And that is why they crow every three hours. There's a rooster in my neighborhood. Now, it's against the rules to keep roosters within city limits, but that hasn't stopped people. And how do and you know there's a rooster, rooster in your neighborhood? That rooster does not crow every three hours. That rooster crows like every 15 minutes. Uh, but all night in long? any case, what I'm saying is medieval people believed that roosters crowed every three hours and that they tuned their crowing to the sort of time of day and the needs of their of their human listeners. And so Hugh says they're like preachers. Good preachers guide their flock through careful moderation of their time. Right. Linguistically speaking, we do know that there is a sort of a, a better observation of cocks crowing, roosters crowing, and I'll get to that in a second, but, which is mm-hmm. that they're, you know, they are silent for most of the night, but they will start to crow as morning approaches, but they will start long before the sun is even near the horizon. So... Uh, and they will crow, and then true. there will be a period of silence, and then they will crow again. So you hear references to, you know, first cock crow, which if our mm-hmm. roosters have been, uh, thank God we don't have one right now, but if they're any judge, first cock crow <laughs> is somewhere between, four, you know, around four o'clock in the morning. You can't really time your Yay. clock by it, but it's usually <laughs> pretty close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, they're, but they're silent for a little while until, you know, then there's second cock crow, and then... Of course, then they can, you know, as the sun actually comes up, it's just awful, you know, because then they're going kind of constantly for a while. So they they knew, I mean, they, they, they are yeah. sort of timekeepers in a way, right? They're somehow aware of the, you know, the passage of time and, and dawn coming. I notice you're saying rooster a lot. And that is an American word that goes back to really the 18th century, I think. So mm-hmm. it's, it's an American coinage. And in Britain, mm-hmm. they still would call them cocks although now the term is cockerel and i think mm. i think the same thing is happening uh now that happened to the word coney or cunny mm-hmm. uh, which is mm-hmm. that we have a sl- the slang word now which has been around since the old english period has taken off right so like now it is it is it is difficult you know certainly for i, I don't know about the british but it's certainly difficult for an, an american to say the word cock you know, without a sort of a twinge of like, what am I actually saying? Uh, so we yeah, I hear you. I mean, rooster. I think all exactly. <laughs> I mean, cock itself, which comes into um, French in like the late 11th, early 12th century, is it's a German word, and it just means male chicken, right? <laughs> or actually, any male bird. It's brought into. French and then through the means of Anglo-Norman French becomes part of the English. You know, it doesn't have this explicit meaning. It doesn't refer to a part of male anatomy necessarily. The way the word cunny does. I mean, there is certainly this tradition of associating masculinity with cocks. I mean, it's even a little bit sketchy because one of the things in chicken agriculture, I guess, that they do is they take, you know, the young birds and they castrate them so that they will grow up into meatier, fatter, more delicious adults. So those are capons, right? Yes. Um, And so there is this whole, and people know about that. So 
it's a little bit complicated when it comes to the connection there. But actually, I was curious about this, too. I think I read that it first comes, cock first comes to actually mean penis in the 17th century in English. But you might have other information. However, I did read that it is common in other languages that have no relationship to English or French or any European language. I guess, you know, the slang term begins to occur, as far as I can tell, late 16th century into the 17th century. And sometimes it's not clear. So there's a, there's a, a book about cockfighting, which I'll maybe have a little bit more to say about later, which is from 1607. And there's a passage where he talks about how men keep cocks for, you know, cockfighting. And then he says that their their wives are are sort of forced to put up with this. But then he has this sort of maybe jokey passage where he talks about the women un- unwillingly having to look after their husband's cock, where it's clear that like, <laughs> like, to, like we would say oh like, that's a pretty good joke right there. Right? But it's like, is he making that joke or is this too early to be making that joke? Generally speaking, you know, like if, if it's a poss- if it's probably a joke, then it almost certainly is in this period. So I, right, I think it's there. Right. I just, I went to Google Ngrams to see like, okay, so what are the, you know, chicken, cock, like what, what's going on with this term? And the, the, the word cock itself, it just explodes after the year 2000. And I'm thinking hmm. those are not references to chickens, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. that slang term has basically taken over as the word for the penis. And it's hmm. pretty recent that it has done so. So if we were doing this podcast yeah, 20 years ago, we would not be at all be embarrassed to talk about, you know, talk about the cock. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I feel like there's a million slang words for the sexual parts of human anatomy. We just, there are. We yeah. like to, we like to talk around them and about them. <laughs> um, Some but, are more popular than others. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because this one really does have some classical heritage, even though it's not used maybe explicitly as a, as a figure for male anatomy and in classical literature. You know, Aristophanes, the classical Greek dramatist, he uses the cock quite often as a figure of sort of the ideal form of masculinity, aggressive, protective of his his flock of women um, and his territory, um, proud, beautiful, all of these things. So I think that's that's in there in the tradition. It's an aggressive word, I guess, is what I'm saying. I'll give you some more quotations from this um, this book by a guy named Wilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he says, first, cocks teach us to be constant and loving to our wives as they are to their hens. Secondly, to be valorous and to fight courageously against our enemies as they do never give over, but either they get the victory or else die valiantly. Thirdly, to be vigilant and mm-hmm. watchful as they are, and to avoid slothfulness, which generally reigns too much in us. And lastly, to stretch forth ourselves and strain our voices in the uttering of God's affairs. All of those things you've already mentioned, the preaching, yeah, like the idea about, you mm-hmm. know, that the voice of the of the rooster is the voice of God, but then taking care of the hens, you know, valiance in battle. Mm-hmm. This is in a this is in a book which is commending cockfighting, by the way. So of of the blood sports which we have encountered before, once again we're in a situation where they're they're not interested in the cruelty per se. They're interested in the valiance of the cock. Yeah, and I, I want to get back to that in just a second, but I want to insert this little note that one of the other things that medieval writers have to say about cocks 
is that they, they're selfless. They're kind of chivalric. That is to say, if you feed a rooster a treat, it will make sure that all of the hens have a chance to sample the treat before it actually starts to eat. When we see behavior that appears to be sort of altruistic or chivalrous in an animal species, we frame that in terms of human conduct and human morality. That's true. I, I mean, I think you know, we've talked about the, the the cock, but there's also the hen. And you know, if the cock is this emblem of mm-hmm. kind of masculinity, re- received as a very in a very positive way, I think it's not the mm-hmm. it's not the sort of uncivil aggression that you see associated with, say, the the mastiff. But the hen, yeah, is sometimes the the flip side, not specifically as gendered female, but as as kind of nurturing and friendly. So Aldrovandi, early ornithologist. Just absolutely love chickens. Has a gigantic, you know, like he, he's like he's the chicken guy of the Renaissance. Um, but he begins by talking about having this hen in his house. So he says, uh-huh. in addition to the fact that she wandered the whole day alone through the house without the company of the other hens, wouldn't go to sleep at night anywhere except near me among my books and those the larger ones. Although sometimes when she was driven away, she wished to lie upon her back. So he's got this hen hmm. that kind of follows him around the house and sleeps on his books at night. Hmm. adorable. And, you know, he raises a lot of chickens. Yeah. And in, for example, Thomas of Cantimpre, you know, in the the book of natural things, he writes about the hen and says, um, quoting Augustine, he he says, you know, she's very skillful with her chicks. She gathers them under her wings and caresses them and defends them. There's a lot of theory about how the eggs are laid, which makes sense because it was major food substance for medieval people. Oh, that that they have to actually work very hard to give birth like human women, and that they make a lot of noise while they're doing it. But my favorite idea about hens is that their bones, if you mix the sort of ash of their bones with gold, it will degrade the gold. What? I know. Why? Why is that even a thing? I'm sure somebody's written a dissertation about that. That goes back, I think, pretty far, too. Um, but you do find it in the medieval tradition. That would just be a base so, that wouldn't do that. I think you need nitric acid to do that, which you're not going to get yeah, from chicken bones. Weird? Oh, another cool fact I learned. There are these breeds of chickens. Now, they're not Western medieval chickens, but they are chickens with medieval origins in East Asia, specifically in Korea. They look like fluffy pom-poms. Their feathers are black. Their skin is black. Their beaks and feet are black. And their bones and their meat are black. How cool is that? So is this a real a real bird? They're the gothiest thing. Yes. Yeah, they are. They're a real, you know, heritage breed of chicken. Well, I mean, I do think like early the earlier writers or, you know, and the, those who were writing about chickens... I guess throughout the period, will note their sort of plasticity, right? Like the huge variety of colors mm-hmm. for for the birds, and they'll describe some of them that they see. Um, yeah, apparently, I mean, I guess there are these sort of zoo archaeologists who have studied the medieval garbage heaps and looked at the chicken bones in those garbage heaps. You know, they've been able to sort of determine that the chickens that people keep domestically today are not the same chickens that were being kept a thousand years ago. The Romans brought chickens with them to England, apparently, but 
they're not the same chickens. But apparently there's this chicken, this British variety of chicken known as a dorking. A very beautiful chicken, for one thing. It's got like this black body and this white brindled neck and this bright red comb and waddle. Anyway, these chickens are described in a Roman writer named Columella in his book De Re Rustica. Um, and he, he describes these chickens and those are the chickens that were brought to England by the Romans that, and it, and they're still raised there today. These rather spectacular looking birds were, were the ones that medieval people had in mind. And I was looking at some manuscript illuminations and indeed I could see the, you know, very rosy comb and wattle and the distinct coloration, sort of black, red and white in some of the illustrations. I mean, we don't really associate the rooster or the chicken with England, right? We associate it with France, you know, it's the national symbol of France. And there's actually a linguistic reason for that. What did Julius Caesar call the place we now know as France? Gaul. Gallus. Gaul. Yes. And people from Gaul are Gallus. And Gallus is also the word for rooster. So in late antiquity, there was a lot of wordplay around roosters. And they were they were a somewhat warlike, proud people, right? So they were like little bantam roosters. Um, well, that makes sense. But interestingly, we're, we're... in the Middle Ages, they didn't really make that connection between the the cock and the and the or the gallus and the gauls. But Charles VII, King Charles VII of France, fifteenth century king, adopted the rooster as his personal symbol, and ever since then, it's been associated with national identity. So, when do we get the rossignol? which is another French word for the rooster, because they, they have, you know, the cock, the cook, uh, but they also have the rossignol, which is like rooster, oh, interesting. right? Okay, so rossignol actually is from the word for nightingale. Oh. And it was a nickname for a person with a good singing voice, or perhaps ironically for um, somebody who's kind of loud. <laughs> Well, that would make sense. So one of the things that the zoo archaeologists have, uh, that I encountered mention uh, from time to time is the age at which chickens die, right? So you, they're looking at their bones so they can figure mm-hmm. out, you know, were they, how, how long were they mm-hmm. being raised? And it seems like in mm-hmm. many places, the medieval and early moderns were keeping chickens alive longer than we do because meat chickens these days... Mm-hmm. I mean, my gosh, you, you know, like they can be seven weeks old and they're bred to grow mm-hmm. so fast that they're full, full sized by then. In fact, you can't. Mm-hmm. Sadly, if you try to take those chickens and raise them to maturity, they'll never make it because they, they'll grow too heavy for their own bones. Um, but that's not true in the middle, middle Ages. But nevertheless, <laughs> they're keeping them longer, which either, you know, it means in part they are keeping them for. Uh, egg production, and particularly egg production that maybe goes on for a lot longer than than we tend to let it go, yeah. or that they're just eating older birds, or that they're breeding them for the for cockfighting, right? So they'll keep them much longer uh, mm. before they put them in the ring. Yeah, so th- yeah, they're much less consistent? industrial, I think. They're less, they're less of a, they're less seen mm. as like purely, uh, you know, a food supply that you just want to maximize your efficiency of the production of food with. I read one article, one scholarly essay about or poultry culture in England and and it suggested that in times of 
shortage. So like immediately after the outbreak of the plague, that chicken consumption would go up. And especially in the more organized strata of farming, that is to say, on manorial lands, there would be more organized poultry farming in those periods of time. The value of the meat was higher in those times. And then the rest of the time, people tended to prefer um, other meats. And so when times were good, people ate lamb or beef or but that because chickens are relatively easy to raise and low cost to raise, there was kind of a boom and bust cycle. So do we know when caponization sort of really began? Because I think there's a debate about when they were able to do that. Aldrovandi mentions it, uh, but there's also uh, some, maybe some evidence that they weren't actually castrating the chickens in the early versions. They were just removing their spurs and then calling them capons. It's not really like good data or good documentary evidence before about 1250. But after that, there's enough to sort of make some quantitative analysis. And caponization is actually mentioned in the documentary sources. Now, yes, we don't know exactly how it was being done. But the fact that capon weighs on average, maybe 10 pounds, which is a little bit higher than a full grown cock or hen. So based on the archaeological evidence, the presence of these larger animals basically suggests that yes they were they were successfully castrating chickens which yeah. apparently is a delicate operation it's a yeah a delicate it, i think there's a high failure rate so mm-hmm. i mean certainly you know in in shakespeare capon is a luxury meat right i mean it's a, that's a high that's a very high quality mm-hmm. thing you're you're eating although they also did mm-hmm. eat chicken sort of younger chickens uh, as well, which I I would imagine if you're a peasant and you just want to raise the food quickly, you don't you don't need to invest the time or the money into a capon um, that you do to get it to up to ten pounds using those early breeds, even with the, even with neutering. Getting back to the cockfighting, it's interesting because I was looking. I thought for sure I would find a lot more about cockfighting in medieval Europe, but I didn't really. The first time it really kind of shows up on the radar is in 1365 in England. King Edward III banned cockfighting, but not for the reasons you might suspect. I was going to say he good for him, but I, I'm not going to say well-being. that now. It wasn't about the well-being of the birds. There was no concern about that harm that was being done. It was rather that men were spending their time cockfighting when they should have been practicing their archery. So interesting that like one of the earliest forms of national service, which is essentially the, the, the rule that all adult males have to practice their archery all the time, intersects with mm-hmm. the you know, history of uh, blood, blood sports and animal cruelty at the same <laughs> yes. time. Yeah. How fascinating. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, so cockfighting, I think it's under-researched, uh, I would say, compared to bear baiting in the early modern mm. period. We know it occurred everywhere. And in fact, there's a famous theater, um, which was uh, formed in a building that used to be a, a cockpit, right? So all, for the first first part of its history, uh, performances would be advertised at a, as occurring at the cockpit in Drury Lane, which was no longer serving, as mm-hmm. far as I know, as a, as a cockpit at all. But it's still, it's mm-hmm. one of those things that's associated with theater, like bear baiting, that we we sort of assume mm-hmm. is just connected with it in all sorts of ways, but I there just there has not been I think enough uh, written about it to know, and mm-hmm. we do have you know this one 
kind of amazing text of sort of a, a, a booster, right? Where he's explaining mm-hmm. all the wonderful reasons why we need cockfighting and why it's a great thing. Uh, but, but it, you know, not, not a lot else. And, and certainly, you know, like Shakespeare's references to cocks are not really about the cockpit as, as much as other, you know, aspects of, of the cock, the cock crowing and, oh, famously in, in Hamlet, of course, you know, the rooster drives away the ghost. Yeah. And there's this comment that's refers to a belief that not only the ghosts are afraid of roosters, right, and will flee when the rooster crows, because it's the harbinger of day, sort of the other things that the ghost must leave mm-hmm. at day, so you think that's a connection. But then apparently ghosts are afraid of roosters, period. And at Christmas time, the rooster will crow all night, and therefore you don't need to worry about evil spirits all night long because the rooster is keeping them away. So, hmm. you know, it's interesting. You know, yeah, according to the medieval bestiary, the other thing that's afraid of roosters, specifically white ones, is lions. Lions are afraid of roosters. And how do they gloss that? They don't. They just they don't. report that, basically. Ah, so they're reporting that as natural history, <laughs> not as yeah. allegory. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, they also report that um, a very old rooster can lay an egg. And when it lays this egg, which has skin rather than shell, Ooh. The egg hatches into a basilisk, which is like a snake on the back end and a rooster on the front end. And an animal that we definitely need to do uh, a, oh, an episode sure. on. So don't say too much about the basilisk. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know that it was born just as from any regular old, from any old cock. <laughs> right? You can get a basilisk. <laughs> I wonder if they ever ate a rooster on the basis that we can't let it get any older or we might have a basilisk on our hands. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely don't want one of those. Now, there's a primary source we need to find. (laughs) It's logical. It it should be there. I will tell you that that story, the first time it shows up, is in one of my favorite medieval authors, just because I like saying his name, the Venerable Bede. So it's Bede who's fault it is that old cocks lay eggs that give rise to basilisks. In the classical period, roosters were associated with prognostication. And people would keep roosters specifically for the purposes of divination, probably involving, you know, dissection of the rooster or, you know, not just asking the rooster a question. uh, But dismembering it. slaughtered it. And then like its guts had the, the answers. Does that so? Yeah. Does that does that persist at all into the Middle Ages? Is there a divinatory role for the rooster? Hmm. Well, I think you know if we go back to the idea that cocks are smart and strong, and they're animals who are astronomers, and astronomers, of course, are concerned with prediction, and they can crow sort of predictively, as as you mentioned, they start crowing before the sun rises, right? So yes, in a sense, they, they they are understood to be connected to this kind of idea of divinatory role by virtue of yeah, predicting I would, I would predicting say the, that is yes. you know, the coming of day. <laughs> right, and even right. in the nun's priest tale, Chanticleer says to uh, Pertolot, he's like, "I had this dream, and I was attacked by a strange beast. He had never seen a fox at this point." Um, and Pertolot tells him it's because he has indigestion. And he's like, no, I don't think so. I think I'm actually seeing the future. 
I think dreams tell the future. So that theme does come in even with Chaucer. Is that the reason why roosters were attached to weather vanes, which gives us the weathercock? Hmm. Even the fr- even the phrase yeah, turning really into the wind, which is weathercocking. Yeah, yeah, that that would make well, sense. Are there medieval weathercocks? Well, it, I mean, in English, it goes back to the 1300s, the word itself. So there must have been weathercocks at, at that point. But I was going to say, as, a, as an art historian, this is another thing you need to look at in, in landscape pictures is check out what's on the barns and the, and the, and the buildings yeah. in the way of, in the way of uh, wind indicators huh. and see how many times they have roosters on them. Well, Pope Leo IV, um, who was a ninth century pope, placed an, a cock on the summit of, on the tower, I should say, of old St. Peter's in Rome. Okay. I mean, it refers to the fact that Jesus predicts that Peter will deny Christ three times before the rooster crows. I mean, that's in that's in the Bible. Yes, there's a biblical uh, allusion there. Although the the impetus to put it, uh, you know, to make it the 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 wind indicator. There's one. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, there's one in the bio tapestry in the or the bio embroidery. So this is in the 11th century. There's an image of a guy like installing a weather vane on Westminster Abbey and it's in the form of a rooster. All right. Another ninth century Pope, Pope Nicholas the first apparently ordered that every church steeple or every church tower, bell tower in Europe should have a cock on the roof, like a weather vane. Well, is he ordering that every, every church needs a weather vane? And just using the weathercock because that's the word no, no. for a weather vane. He's saying a, a cock. A cock. And, no, and no, no. He, say, he says it has a, to be a cock, and you could also make cock. it a weather vane. I don't think he. Yeah. Like optionally. Yeah. Okay. I think optionally. <laughs> optionally, like you can make your cock movable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel like we're getting into dangerous territory there. There is okay, so there. So we have prognostication on the one hand, and then there's wind on the other. And I wonder. There's a belief that goes back to Aristotle, which is that a hen will every so often lay an egg that is has no yolk in it. Chicken keepers know this, right? Occasionally, you get an egg. It's usually small, right? And it's like missing the yolk. It's just a defective egg. But mm-hmm. going back to Aristotle, these were called wind eggs because the idea was that the chicken is being impregnated by the wind rather than the rooster, uh-huh. and therefore. There's no yolk, and that is an egg produced oh. by the wind. So they're they're connected with the wind somehow. They are, and I will tell you that the oldest surviving weather vane from around the time of Charlemagne, so or or his son Louis the Pious, it's called the Gallo di Ramperto, um, and it is a gilded silver and copper cock. Slash that, rooster. Yeah, from northern Italy, from Brescia. So, I mean, that's certainly an indication that it's not that they're putting roosters on the roof and then turning them into weather vanes. Like they are from the moment they go up there. That's the, you know, yeah. they're weathercock. They're weathercocks, weathercocks from the beginning, not just cocks like right. later being, you yeah. know, predicting the weather. And the interesting thing is it's sort of a cross-cultural phenomenon. That is to say, there's a lot of evidence from um, ancient China that these like wind-observing tools were in the form of a bird. So I think it kind of makes sense, right? They're birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
birds fly on the wind. Yeah. Do you have a weathercock on your house? No, I don't. I have a a roof that needs to be replaced, though. So perhaps uh, when we have the roof replaced, I'll I'll have a weather vane put up. Do you? Do you have a weather vane with a cock? We have a weather vane, but it's got a sailboat on it because I insisted. (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) We had the choice of we had the choice of a rooster. Oh, yeah. But these days, you know, there's probably like you could probably have a Star Wars weather vane if you want. All right. Well, I'm sure there's plenty more to say about chickens. Yeah. Oh, they are which they are sometimes I mean, witches familiars. So, you can fly on a broomstick, mm. but you can also fly on a green hen if you put the you know with a you tie the right color thread around its legs and you can just flap off on your hen. Fun. Yeah. It seems like it would be more comfortable than a broomstick, kind of it does. pushy. And I would say also that like they're everywhere in medieval manuscripts in the margins, often just kind of hanging out, but also sometimes being ridden by human or humanoid characters. Sometimes they have a snail shell on their back for reasons I can't explain, but there are a lot of them. Well, if you free range chickens, they're going to be around and underfoot and in the yard. And if you're a manuscript illustrator and I mean, it's going to occur to you frequently to put chickens in things because they're also very often very pretty and roosters are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. With their plumage. Apparently there were, there was like a trade in heritage chicken breeds, even in the middle ages. So like Marco Polo and other Italian merchants who traded with East Asia would, you know, acquire these exotic breeds and bring them back to Europe, which is partly why the the breeds that we have today in Europe are not the same as the breeds that were hanging out in, in Charlemagne's time. All well, right, this has been Ian, fun. I'll, I'll and... leave you to tend your chickens. <laughs> Until next time. Right. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. Thank <laughs> you.